The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. So we come this morning, continuing on in our series of looking at, as Martin Luther said in his understanding of Romans, that it was as if it was opening the doors of heaven, that by reading this, probably the most important letter ever written in all of human history, that in reading it, he realized and heaven's doors opened for him and he saw the glory and the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And folks, because of that, millions of people have been changed ever since. Because one man saw the glory of Jesus Christ through one book of the Bible. You know what that means for you? When you get captivated by the gospel of Jesus Christ, lives can be affected onto generations through you, your families, your grandchildren, generations, because you looked into the scripture by the power of the Holy Spirit, and your eyes were opened, and you saw heaven in all of its glory, and all of its majesty, and Paul has been, been writing, and pounding, and thundering away with the pen uh, of saying, this is what you need to know of who you are in Christ Jesus, you need to know what happened to you legally in that great transaction of the gospel, where the righteousness of Christ Jesus was given, imputed to you, and it is now your righteousness and your unholiness has been given, your unrighteousness has been given to Christ, and that he stands condemned so that you would stand accepted, forgiven, and full of the assurance that comes with that. And we've seen in the beauty of not only is God our judge who has now declared us as free and not guilty, but he's our father who loves us and celebrates us and is with us. And Paul's been teaching uh, on these things. And we've seen that who we are matters. That how we understand the world matters. Uh, That the events that take place in our lives don't happen uh, within this tiny little time continuum. But it happens within all of eternity. And that we see it in light of that. Paul's been teaching and teaching on these things. And he's been teaching us and saying that the Holy Spirit, especially here in chapter 8, He uses and speaks of the Holy Spirit 17 times in the first verses of chapter 8. And he goes on and he's talking about what's the role uh, of the Spirit. And we notice and recognize uh, that the role of the Spirit in Paul's understanding, uh, there are lots of functions, but three main functions come. One is to declare and to apply to us the forgiveness that we have in Christ Jesus. That you are positionally now... uh, saved. You are positionally now the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. All of your sins have been forgiven. Your debt is paid. Uh, The songs that we're singing, all the things that we're talking about, that those things are true. That's a part of the work of the Holy Spirit. But he doesn't leave it there. He also goes further in the work of the Holy Spirit is to assure you, as I've already said, that this judge is also your father. That not only are you positionally now with God uh, in heaven, you are relationally with him. That your Father in heaven delights in you. That he loves you. That he likes you. He enjoys you. He wants to be in relationship with you. He is a Father in heaven who wants to defend you and protect you and love you. And provide for you all of the great gifts that he can. But we also see now a third function of the Holy Spirit. 
There's the function of making sure that we understand our salvation, that we're born again in Christ. Making sure that we understand our adoption relationally. But now, the role of the Holy Spirit in this last part of chapter 8 is to drive home our assurance of those things. Because you see, it's very interesting. Paul speaks 17 times of the Holy Spirit in the first part of chapter 8. And then beginning in verse 31 and on, he doesn't mention the Holy Spirit again. He goes into this questioning, as it would, uh, of this incredible climax of, of this part of the letter and this part of his argument. And he is pushing and pushing and pushing this assurance. He's saying, I am persuaded, verse 38. I am persuaded. I am convinced. I am assured uh, of these things that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Can death? Rhetorical question, of course not. Can anything persuade us? Can no? Who can condemn? No one can. Who can separate us? Nothing can. Who can do this? No one can. What he's trying to say is this work of the Holy Spirit seems at some level almost to be the primary work of the Holy Spirit. Do you know why Paul is highlighting our need to be assured of the truth of the gospel? It's because we're not sure. It's not complex, folks. When God was saying to Joshua, be strong and very courageous, why was he saying be courageous? Because he was waffling on his courage. He was afraid. Why would Paul have asked for prayer uh, that he would be bold? Well, he was waffling on his boldness. He was giving in at some level to people-pleasing or fear of man and wondering. And so he asked for prayer. So Scripture doesn't have to be complex in your study of it. If God is saying to us through Paul now that I want you to be assured of your salvation, the reason that he wants you to be assured of your salvation is because you're not. Humanity constantly wrestles with these questions. The questions of is God for me? Is God going to see me through until the end? Has he forgotten me? Does he, does he love me? You see, normally in the Christian life, we start out with different questions. The questions that begin in the beginning of the Christian walk, if you give your life to Christ, usually go like this. Is it worth it? Is it worth it for me? to follow Jesus Christ? Is it worth it for me to stop doing certain things, to give up these things? Is it worth it at the end of the day for me to keep going on this, to be maybe isolated within my teenage group and my peers, uh, to be isolated within my business practices? Is it worth it for me uh, to do this in my relationships with other people? But then the question becomes more complex and it goes even deeper because most people would say, yeah, it's worth it. Cognitively, they would say that. It's worth it. Heaven's worth it. But then the question becomes something deeper. Is God for me? Am I going to lose this? Has he had enough of me? Especially after time. A year into it, you don't have a lot of a track record. You kind of look back and you go, yeah, I keep blowing it, but I'm only a year into this. But 10 years, 40 years, 60 years in, and you look back And you go, I keep messing up over and over and over again. I keep falling into the same sins over 
and over again. And when I look at the constancy of my life and of my failures and of all the things that seem to be happening to me, that no matter where I move, there seems to be difficulty. No matter where I move, no matter who I'm with in relationship, there always seems to be difficulty that comes. And what I've determined in all of this and all the complexity and the higher thought that I have, the common denominator in this is me. So I must be the problem. And God has probably just had enough of me. And if he's holding on at all, He's just so disappointed and discouraged in me. There's no hope, really. There's no happiness and joy. It's just a, well, I just resign myself to mediocrity and hope at the end of the day, wish that if there is a heaven, I get to get in. But I'm not all sure about that. And you wonder. And so you have these questions And you take your questions of assurance, you take your questions of love, uh, of whether God is going to be there, whether you're enough, whether you have what it takes, and instead of going to God with it because you can't go to Him, because if He answers it negatively, you are done. So you dare not ask Him. So you go to your spouse, you go to your family, you go to your children, you go to your work. And you ask the question, am I enough? Are you going to stay with me? You're not going to leave me, are you? I'm safe with you, right? And for some of you, as children, and it's so, it's so right and normal for children to ask their parents that. And then a parent who's supposed to protect you abused you. A parent who's supposed to be there for you left. And the profound and deep questions are answered. I must not be safe. I must not truly be loved. You look in the mirror and you realize you're falling apart. Sometimes parents, we look to our children and we demand for them to answer the question. That I've got it. I'm loved. It's safe. It's good. And we wear our children out because we're asking them a question that only God can answer. And you go from work to work and occupation to occupation and medication to medication and drug to bottle to exercise to whatever it is trying to find some salve for the ultimate question that you're asking is God are you safe and am I safe with you so today we're going to try to answer that question a little bit for you and to bring about some assurance in your life And in that, once you start to hear God's answer for you, it's incredibly free. It's freeing to the people around you. You don't demand life from them. You allow them to mess up. You allow them to be who they are. You don't demand from your work. Life, work is just work. Fun is just fun. Your team wins, your team loses. It's okay at the end of the day. It's not your life. It's not your assurance. Even your own record, because what happens, we're all little moralists. We're all recovering Pharisees within the church. And we have to do right and do right and do right. And then if we do right, then we know, hey, then I'm assured. I've done right in this. And then when you mess up, oh, you can't deal with your mess ups. You ever been around a person who basically has staked their claim on their moral qualities and goodness and you've recognized that they've failed? Oh, boy, they don't want to hear it. They will defend at all costs. And that defense usually goes something like this. Well, that may be true of me, but let's talk about you for a while. Let me point out in you 
something that I see in you. You think I've got a problem. Hey, hey, hey. And so you can't. There's no surety. You are worn out by trying to make sure by your good record and your good works and your moral high ground that God is for you and not against you. And you're tired and you've worn everybody else out around you. So what does Paul have to say for that? Well, here in chapter 38, he comes. And let's read these verses together. I'm going to back up and pick up in verse 26 and read to the end of the chapter. This is God's very word. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. For the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Is it God who justifies? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. Paul can preach. And Paul was preaching to hearts, both in the current context of the Roman church and in the current context of the Hilton Head Presbyterian Church of hearts that need to be assured of his goodness and his love and his faithfulness to us. So in the moments that we have together, we're going to look and see three things. The first seems rather straightforward and obvious, and it's this. Assurance can be found. You can find assurance. Second, there are obstacles to your assurance. There are obstacles, both internal and external obstacles, to your finding assurance in this life. And then we're going to go and see the source of true assurance and come and encourage our hearts to keep running back to it. So the first thing is very simple. Again, my job isn't all that complex. It's to read the Scripture and make sure that I understand it so I can tell you about it. And here's what I saw in verse 39, 38. For I am... Sure. I am convinced. I am fully persuaded. I know this to be true. Paul is saying, I have found there is an assurance to be found and you can find it. You don't have to go through this life wondering all the time. 
Now, that assurance may ebb and flow a time and gets and goes as things happen within your life, but that assurance is always there. It is attainable for you, and that's good news. I worked for an organization one time, and every year we would have our annual reviews. And I love annual reviews. They're so much fun, aren't they? And ours was on a five scale. And five was, you are unbelievably good. You're outstanding. You're doing more than you could have expected or wanted uh, in that. One was, you probably should have already been looking for a new job. Two was, you're below average. We're not going to fire you, but we're going to put you on a program to make sure you get back up to speed. Three was, you've met expectations. It's like Melba toast, like flatbread. Thanks, I met expectations. That's awesome. Four was really what you're shooting for because you knew that one, you're done and gone, and five, you never got. Because I was told that no one really ever gets a five because if you get a five, that means you're probably not spending any time with your family, that you're sacrificing things that you shouldn't sacrifice in ministry. So really, it's not a five scale, it's a three scale, two, three, and four. And so five was never attainable. So guess what happens when you realize that five's never attainable? You shoot for four. If assurance in your mind is that five, if it's just something that's out there but it's only theory, then you're going to quit wrestling for it and you're just going to submit yourself to a life of mediocrity and a life of groaning that says, I'm never going to find that assurance because it doesn't really ever come. And you're just going to sit down and you're going to give up in the midst of it. Paul is saying to you today, the Lord through Paul, by divinely speaking through him, is saying to you today, you can be assured of my love for you in every moment and in every situation in which you find yourself, no matter where you are, no matter where you find yourself, I have you. And that's good news, isn't it? So if you're not assured of those things, keep plowing forward. Because it is attainable. It is available. That no matter what else is happening to me or around me, no matter how bad it looks, no matter how much it looks like God is against me, no, not for me, no matter how much my own heart is condemning me and accusing me and doubting me, no matter, no matter. I know this to be true. I know this to be true. And I'm going to cling to it with every shred of energy that I have in my life. That God loves me. That God loves me. That he has me. And I'm safe. You see, this is the undercurrent of your daily interactions. This is the glorious umbrella under which you live all of your life and move and have your being. Is the assurance that you have that your salvation is safe in Christ Jesus. Oh, how your life and my life would look different if we actually lived as if we believed the things that we say we believe. It would be different. So it is available. But there are obstacles, and I've said that there are two different kinds of obstacles. There's an internal obstacle, and there's an external obstacle. The internal obstacle comes in the form of our hearts, our consciences, uh, our minds, that what we find is that we're vulnerable to a charge. We're vulnerable to a charge, and we realize that in verse 33 when it says, who can bring a charge against us? Who is it that's going to bring a charge against God's elect? What he's really saying is there's charges that are brought against you, and you know that. Let's do it. Since we've been polling all week, let's do another little poll today. Anybody mess up this week? That's pretty good. 
You messed up this week. So guess what? There's a charge against you. You failed. You messed up. You didn't love as fully as you should have loved. Maybe you hated. Maybe you grumbled. Maybe you complained. Uh, Maybe you stole. Maybe you lied. Maybe you sped. I don't know what you did, but you did something. And there's a charge. It's a chargeable offense against you in a cosmic and universal courtroom of God. And you know who knows that you failed more than anybody else? You do. You do. You know that you failed in private. You know that you failed, some of you, in what you looked at on a computer. Some of you failed in your behavior out on a Friday or Saturday night. Well, those are the easy ones to identify. Some of you failed because you're so prideful. You're so above it. Some of you failed in your anger and your disdain for people. Some of you failed in your insensitivity to the needs of others as you saw them in your lack of care and concern. But we've all failed. And those are chargeable offenses. And what happens within that is what the evil one says and what our hearts say about us is, oh gosh, you blew it again. There's no way. There's no way that God really is still with you on this one. He has stepped away. There is a massive space between the two of you. What you need to understand and what you need to apply readily at that moment as you feel that attack even within your own heart is this. Look at what it says there. Who can bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies, who condemns. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, the one who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Do you know what he's doing for you at the right hand of God the Father? He's not saying to his Father, have mercy. You realize that, right? You know what he's demanding from his Father on your behalf, who are already covered by the blood of Jesus Christ as a son or daughter, justified and adopted? Do you know what Christ is demanding as an articulate attorney in building the case? What he's saying is this, Father, I demand justice for this individual. Because you can't have double jeopardy, Father. I paid it for Bill. He blew it, I paid it. He now gets all the benefits of freedom and of righteousness and of goodness from your hand. I'm the one who drank the wrath. I'm the one who you turned your face away from. I'm the one who went to hell on his behalf. I'm the one who was pierced and crushed under your divine anger and wrath and justice. So I demand justice, Father, for Bill. I don't have to throw myself on the mercy of the court and hope against hope that God's going to like me and forgive me? You realize that in the midst of this whole thing, the law is no longer against you. It's on your side. The law's been completed for you. Do you realize that? And your heart's going to say, no, it's not. You're going to have to keep going back. But Christ, and he's interceding on your behalf. And you see your attorney so articulately speaking on your behalf. And reminding the judge and reminding you more than anything that you're forgiven in him. And you can be assured of that. But there's also an enemy outside. The enemy of this world and of the fall and the effects of the fall and of bankruptcy and of cancer and of lost relationship, of issues that we face, of persecutions and trials and distress, famine and nakedness and danger and sword. It's all kinds of things that we face. And you know what happens when we face those things and what many of us do when we face those things in our lives? We question God. 
God, are you good? Are you for me or against me? Because it seems that everything I'm looking at as I look at the atlas of the history of my life, you seem to be against me. And I've told you over and over again not to have that other shoe theology. That something good happens, but you're waiting for the other shoe to drop. That God's going to get you, that he's there, that something bad's going to happen. And you look and you perceive things and we perceive them wrongly. There is an enemy and there is persecution and there is difficulty and there's trial and there's all of that. But what you need to understand within that and the place you need to go running back to is a geographic place. You need to be a biblical geographer. And you're going to need to go run back to Dothan. Because you know what happened to Dothan, right? You don't? Dothan was the place where the pit was, where Joseph's brothers took him and threw him in the pit. And I can only imagine that as a teenage boy separated from his family, isolated and alone, probably cried out to God to rescue him and take care of him. And God didn't. The Midianites came and a band of Bedouins came and took him as a slave and took him into Egypt and he was cast into slavery in Egypt and he suffered and he was in turmoil in Egypt and it seemed that God never answered him and never answered him and never answered him. And then one day his brothers showed up and there was famine in the land and he had risen to a place of prominence but he was always without his family. And he was there and he provided for his brothers and he looked at his brothers and he looked in the face of his father and he said, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And then in your mind, you're going to go, but I've thought about Dothan again. Because several centuries later at Dothan, there was a prophet, Elisha, who stood in Dothan, now a city. And there were armies coming around Israel. And they were surrounded, and Israel was going to be attacked. And Elisha cried out, just as Joseph had cried out in a pit, Elisha cried out in a pit. And he said, God, you have to save us. And God sent fiery chariots down from heaven and destroyed all of the enemies. Was God more for Elisha than he was for Joseph? The record would seem that he was. He he instantaneously answered Elisha. Tim Keller writes this about that. What that means is God was just as actively working everything together for good in Joseph's life as in Elisha's life. He was just as actively working in the seeming slowness and non-answer to Joseph as he was in the swift, noisy answer to Elisha. Paul says that's always the case. No matter how much bad stuff is happening inside you, no matter how much bad stuff is happening outside of you, you can be assured that God absolutely, infallibly, unchangeably loves you. Isn't that good to know? So if the person next to you is getting the instantaneous chariots of fire answer and you're over here suffering in a pit for years, it doesn't mean that God has forsaken you. He's working differently in each of you, but he is at work, and you need to believe that and know that. Oh, how we look and want to be Elisha's. Because then God would be, then we'd believe. Then we would believe. So many of us find ourselves a lot like Joseph. But we find ourselves questioning God. So what's the source of this assurance? Where do we go to find all of this assurance uh, that, that we need? Folks, it's really, really simple. I didn't eat breakfast this morning out of duty and obligation. I'm not breathing in front of you out of discipline. I don't drink water 
because it's something that's been mandated to me to do. I eat and I drink and I breathe because it is the essence of my life that I have to have to live. I'm glad that you have quiet times, but please, please, please do not turn them into duty and obligation. Come to his word as if you are breathing and drinking and eating from it. For you have to approach it as your very life. To come to it as a deer pants for streams of living waters. That picture is as a deer is heaving in the throes of death because the living water in the wadi that is a flood tidal place is now dried up and it goes back to the place where it seemed to be or used to be and now it's dry and it's crying out for the need. That's why we come back to God's word. That's why I want you to study God's word. That's why it's so necessary. It is the source of your assurance. It is the very hope that we have in this life. I talked to Lisa, my wife, this morning as she came in today. I talked to my son, Will, this morning as I came in today. You know why? Because I was supposed to. That's what you're supposed to do, right? You check it off. Married, father, talk to wife, talk to children. Got it. Done. Okay. 30 seconds enough? All right, fine, I'll go an hour and talk to you. Just as his word is your very life, prayer is something natural. I speak to my family because I love them and enjoy being in relationship with them more than anyone else in this world. God is saying, pray to me. Pray to the silent God that I won't be silent anymore. Pray to the absent God that I won't be absent in your life anymore. Pray to me. Call me to action. Pray to me. Speak to me. And don't just do it out of duty. Don't just do it because you have to. Do it because it's the very heartbeat of your life. And you want to be in relationship with me. And you talk with me. And sometimes, as Paul said in Romans 8 here, there are groanings that are too deep for words. So sometimes, just as in any deep and intimate relationship that you have, a parent to a child, child to parent, friend to friend, or spouse to spouse, sometimes you just go in and all you can do is just go, and that spouse goes, I know. That child goes, I know. That parent goes, I know. God says the same thing. I testify to you with my spirit in words that are too deep, or in groanings that are too deep for words. So where do we find this assurance in his word? Through prayer. You know why we come every single first Sunday of the month and have communion? As a means of grace. Why we baptize our children as a part of the public worship of God to show his faithfulness to us, to show the beauty and the picture of the sacraments within our life I wish we had communion every single Sunday. Because what you'd see in communion every single week as you come and you partake of it and you're there with it and seeing and being assured of it is God is saying to you this, I didn't spare my own son for you. How much more am I going to give you? I haven't held back anything from you. Why are you doubting me? I saw a great illustration. If someone comes and offers you a Mercedes... Brand new Mercedes, I don't own ones, I don't know all the classes, but the nice ones. Not that there's not, but anyway, the really nice ones. And then that person goes to the Mercedes dealership and says, okay, now I want to give this to Bill, but I want to put a ribbon on it. And the dealership goes, that's a $25 extra dollar charge. Oh, 
I'm not paying $25. He's not worth 25 extra bucks. I'm not doing that. That's crazy. How silly is that? You're willing to pay $100,000, but you're not going to be willing to pay twenty-five. Of course you would. It's the same thing with God. He has paid infinite price for a gift for you in his son, Jesus Christ. He's not going to hold anything else back. He's going to give you the bow. He's going to give you what you need in this life. Because he's already given you a down payment. A full payment on your behalf in him. And oh, how we wonder if God's going to give us the bow. And we question. You see, in all of this, and I'll end here. For God works together all things for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among all brothers. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. Folks, he's done it all for you already. God did on his behalf. On your behalf, excuse me. But he's done all of these things. All of that, by the way, is past tense, aorist in the Greek. It's already happened. He's already loved you. He's already called you and established you and justified you and already glorified you. You just haven't fully experienced it yet. But folks, it's coming at the end of the day. And Christ has done all of this on your behalf. I'm going to invite the team to come on up, but I'm going to say this to you. Charles Spurgeon put it this way, that when you look back at the cross of Jesus Christ, the most amazing thing about the cross isn't necessarily that Jesus went to the cross where he was abused, where he was crushed, uh, where he was beaten, and where he died. The most amazing thing about the cross of Jesus Christ is that he stayed. Is that he stayed on it. That he was willing to do all of that for you. Oh, how much more is he not going to give you in this life and in the life to come? You can be assured of that in him. And so we're going to stand together now. I invite you to stand. And let's sing this great closing hymn. This is what I believe. I believe in God the Father. I believe in Christ the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the three in one. I believe in the resurrection, that he will come again. For I believe in the name of Jesus Christ. Let's sing together.